0: The preparation of this talk was hampered by three things. Uh, the first is that the fact that much of what it deals with, the subject deals with, is a mystery which no amount of reading or study uh, can ever hope to make understandable. Indeed, the study of this subject I've found gives rise to more questions than it supplies answers. But this ought not to surprise us because the subject goes to the heart of the Trinity itself and the (coughs) the philanthropic Saviour. The second thing is that despite the fact that there are a fair number of works on the subject of the work of the Holy Spirit, there is relatively little in those works that deals with the subject before us. There are some notable exceptions, but even in these it is a relatively small part of the work that um, deals with it. I think, for example, of Owen and Smeaton and Kuyper um, and uh, uh, even Goodwin's uh, work on um, Christ the Mediator, uh, (coughs) the whole of what he has to say in this can be reduced to two sides of an E4. And the third reason um, that uh, hampers the preparation of this talk is my own limited understanding of these profound issues and the fact that it is so easy to stray into error in a subject like this. And so I ask your forbearance and uh, your correction if I do so. Now before we look at the subject proper, I want to just lay down three preliminary uh, basic theological propositions. Um, I won't refer to these again, but these underlie what we have to say. The first is that the external works of the Trinity are indivisible. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in all these external works. The second is that the fact that there are certain things unique to each of the persons not shared by the other persons of the Godhead. So we say the Father alone begets The Son alone is begotten, and the Spirit alone proceeds. And then thirdly, um, some external works are more particularly attributed uh, to one or other of the persons. And our particular concern in this study is with the attribution of certain works of the third person as they relate to the second person. Uh, Scripture uh, shows that the Holy Spirit is the executor of the Godhead. He is the efficient cause of the works of God in the world. So we keep these things in mind and we turn to our subject proper. The first uh, thing that I want to consider is the Spirit's activity in the Incarnation. And here we have three things that need to be looked at. The first is the creation of the human nature of Christ the second is the sanctification of the human nature, and the third is the assumption of the human nature by the second person of the Godhead. If we consider the creation of the human nature, although it may be described as the work of the triune God, the Gospel makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is the one who formed the body and soul of the human nature of Christ. And the passage that we read together Made that clear. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. This creation of the human nature of Christ is not a creation ex nihilo. It is a creation from the substance of Mary. The Spirit is is not the material cause of the conception, but the efficient cause. He is the active principle, and the passive principle is Mary. So Christ is conceived by the power of the Spirit, but not of the substance of the Spirit. The second thing to note is the uh, nature of the conception. And as far as that is concerned, I would suggest that it is fruitless to speculate exactly how the Spirit formed Christ's human nature. It was a mysterious and supernatural (coughs) act of the Spirit that broke the line of Adam's fallenness. The Saviour, although bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, is clearly not so by ordinary generation. And we must always remember, in having said that, That although the conception was supernatural, the nativity of the Saviour was natural. So that having been conceived, he enters into the stream of humanity. He goes through the normal period of gestation. He is born in the normal way and so on. So much then for the creation of the human nature of Christ. The sanctification of the human nature of Christ. We ask the question, how is it possible for the second person to assume a human nature without contracting Mary's guilt? We are told that he was born of Mary, and she was a sinner. Yet that which was conceived in her womb was that holy thing. The usual answer is to say that the nature was sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and Turretin uh, says this concerning it. The Holy Spirit must prepare the substance absided, just means cut off, from the substance of the Blessed Virgin by a suitable sanctification. Not only by endowing it with life and elevating it to that degree of energy, which is sufficient for generation without sexual connection, but also by purifying it from all stain of sin, so that it shall be harmless and undefiled, and thus that Christ may be born without sin hence there is no need of having recourse to the doctrine of the immaculate conception of Mary for although there is no created power which can bring a clean thing from an unclean yet the divine power is not to be so limited to this there is nothing impossible this calls things which are not as if they were and then again um, uh, writer David Pitcairn in a book called The Anointed Saviour, says this The Son of God, it is true, being himself the God of holiness, could have formed no union with a manhood which was polluted by actual guilt or even capable of sinning. But his na- uh, human nature was as really a creature substance as are our own bodies. And the Spirit of God is the alone sanctifier and upholder of any of the creatures of God, and thus. Needful as was the divine nature in Christ to make his personal and vicarious sufferings all sufficient for the sins of the world, it was no less needful that Jesus, as the servant of Jehovah, should be thoroughly sanctified as well as officially anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power in order that his entire obedience on our behalf might be holy and unblameable and that he might give himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. It is, if, if this is so, if this uh, uh, sanctification took place, um, that entire sanctification of the Saviour, uh, the, the human nature of the Saviour, then surely it is required that that human nature be sanctified either prior to or at the same point um, of conception and assumption. In other words, I don't believe that if Pitcairn is correct, uh, that it could have been done after the human nature was assumed by Christ. It must have been either um, simultaneous with that assumption, or if it's possible, even prior to that assumption. However, here is another mystery. Despite being without sin, Christ had all the unmoral um, infirmities of our fallen nature, yet not our fallenness. How can we explain this? Well, I'm going to leave that for you to uh, try and explain. I've got some views and uh, perhaps I'll throw them into the pot later. The third thing that we notice in the incarnation is the assumption of the human nature by the second person. uh, Did the Holy Spirit play any part in this? Well, we have to ask a number of questions here also. Who or what assumed the human nature? And the answer I, 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 I would give you is this, that it was the second person himself and not the divine nature of the second person. Furthermore, the assumption of the human nature was restricted to the second person, it was only the Son who was incarnate, not the Trinity, although the Father prepared a nature and the spirit formed the nature, it was the son alone who assumed that human nature to his divine person. What happened at the assumption of that human nature to the divine person, and in answer, I would say the second uh, the divinity of the second person was not transferred to or intermixed with that human nature. Christ did not take a human person to himself, but a human nature without personal subsistence. There was no third nature produced, but in the incarnation, two perfect natures were united in one divine person. And again, it was necessary that that human nature be assumed by the second person. For only thus could he render the righteousness owed by and bear the punishment due to the nature upon which the guilt of sin lay. So with regards to the Spirit's work in the incarnation, there is Spirit activity, the Holy Spirit activity in the creation of the nature and in the sanctification of the nature But I think that um, it would be difficult to show that there is Holy Spirit activity in the assumption of the human nature. We move on then to the next period in the life of Christ and consider the Spirit's activity in the natural development of Christ. And here again we have a number of points We can consider the Holy Spirit's operation in the natural development of the human nature of Christ by a comparison with his work in Adam's creation. Man was formed of the dust of the ground and life was imparted by the breath of the Spirit of God. Everything which is essential and peculiar to human nature was derived from the Spirit's work, both his body and his soul. There were certain moral faculties necessary to man's communion with God, namely, ability to discern the will of God, uh, the disposition to obey the will of God, and the ability to perform the will of God. These uh, These things were lost at the fall. And since we are told that in grace the Holy Spirit renews us in these things, The implication is that he was the original framer of them. That being so, we may infer that just as the Spirit was the source of these faculties in Adam, so he is the source of these faculties in Christ, who is made in all points like as we are, yet without sin. One major difference is that Adam was created um, as an adult with all these faculties fully operational whereas Christ comes into the world as an infant with all these things in potential, not in the fullness of them in practice. Thus, he learned obedience. He grew in favor with God and with men. It might help us to understand this by comparing the innate capacity of all men to know that God exists. A child new from the womb uh, has the capacity for Uh, the knowledge of God's existence, but not the active functioning of it. However, there comes a point in its development when it is conscious that the creation (coughs) testifies uh, to the eternal power and Godhead of God, and it is immediately grasped, even although in sinners it is also immediately suppressed. Then thirdly, that there was development and growth in Christ's human nature Cannot be not be denied by anyone who takes the gospel narrative seriously. Christ begins as a babe in a manger. Luke two tells us that following his presentation in the temple, the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And if you permit a, a, a lengthy quotation from Smeaton, he says. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. This passage proves that we must ascribe to the spirit all the progress in Christ's mental and spiritual development and all his advancement in knowledge and holiness. He went through the successive stages of acquiring in a manner absolutely unique because his humanity had its existence in the personal union. He was filled by the Spirit with a wisdom which replenished all the powers of his rational nature. Though the increase at first sight seems incompatible with his being the Son of God, yet perfection is compatible with progress in a created nature, and he must needs be made like unto his brethren. He knew as a boy what he had not acquired as a child, and as all the gifts were supplied to him by the Spirit, we can trace the following stages which come to light in our Lord's history. The spirit was given to him in consequence of the personal union in a measure which no mere man could possess, constituting a link between the deity and humanity, perpetually imparting the full consciousness of his personality and making him inwardly aware of his divine sonship at all times. Then uh, Luke goes on to tell us uh, that when Jesus was 12 years old, he became separated from his parents in the annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. When he was found at last in the temple, he was found amidst the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. A number of things that are worthy of note here, and I just put them out for your consideration, um, uh, are these. Jesus intentionally stayed in, in Jerusalem. Jesus stayed in Jerusalem because he knew he must be about his father's business. He is engaged in loving communion with his father. Jesus stayed in order to learn. The grasp that Jesus had of spiritual things uh, discussed was extraordinary. And the narrative concludes with a reference to the ongoing increase of wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. The development was the development of a real human nature. And while it is true that at conception the human nature of Christ was fully sanctified so that it was perfectly holy, it was perfect with a, with a holiness appropriate to humanity. Speaking of John 3 34, Kuiper says, This has reference, uh, that is, um, this, uh, he giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. This has reference to the contrast between others whom the Holy Spirit endowed not without measure, uh, but in limited degree according to their individual calling or destiny, and Christ, in whom there is no such distinction or individuality. To whom, therefore, gifts, powers, and faculties are imparted in such a measure that he could uh, never feel the lack of any gift of the Holy Spirit; he lacked nothing; uh, uh, he, uh, he lacked nothing, possessed all, not by virtue of his divine nature, which cannot receive anything, but by uh, but being the eternal fullness itself, but by virtue of his human nature, which was endowed. With such glorious gifts of the Holy Spirit. But this holiness that is being referred to. um, Was a holiness which developed in tandem with the physical and mental development of the human nature. In this connection the human nature of Christ though fully sanctified by the Spirit at conception. Nevertheless did not enter into the full exercise of the mental, moral and spiritual gifts and graces. uh, with which he was endowed immediately, but the spirit brought them at the appropriate point into full activity. Again, as Kuiper said, no doubt his development was quick and beautiful, surpassing anything ever seen in other children, so that the aged rabbis in the temple were astonished when they looked upon the boy only 12 years old, yet it always remained the development of a child, that first lay upon his mother's lap, then learned to walk, gradually became a boy and a youth until he attained the fullness of man's stature. So much then for the um, Holy Spirit's work in the development of the human nature. We look now at the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ's ministry. And I want us to notice a number of things here. Here. Notice in the first place um, his baptism. The saviour at his baptism was inaugurated into his public ministry. It was at this point in the gospel narratives that the question of who the Christ was arises. The people were wondering if it was John the Baptist, but he makes it clear that he was not the Christ. Rather he directs them to Jesus upon whom the spirit descended in the form of a dove. The significance of this lies in the title of the one being looked for, namely the Christ or the anointed. The Old Testament clearly predicted um, one who would be anointed and showed this typically in that the prophets, priests and kings were anointed with oil. But the oil symbolized the unction of the Holy Spirit. Anointing to these offices involved reception of spiritual gifts for their function. Messiah would be, according to John the Baptist, anointed with the Holy Ghost. Smeaton says concerning this, This descent of the Spirit was intended to confirm and encourage the Lord Jesus before entering on his arduous work. And it took place in that public concourse of people which assembled to hear the Baptist and became the occasion of his public introduction into office. Who would deny that the Lord was moved by the Spirit to come to Jordan to take the baptism of John? Although it is not said in the Scriptures, everything that follows indicates uh, that it was the Spirit who was moving him in that direction. But at this point, uh, a question may arise. How could the Spirit come on him who was already filled with the Spirit? Because we have maintained that at, his, um, at, uh, at the point of the assumption, or before the point of the assumption of the human nature, it was fully sanctified. And yet we are asking, how could it be? Well, the, um, how could the Spirit come on him? who was already filled with the Spirit. The answer lies in the fact that the anointing was an anointing to the office of the Christ and a pouring out of the necessary gifts for that office. A further question might be asked, namely, who or what was anointed? Was it his human nature, his divine nature, or his person? Uh, Smeaton answers the question this way, and I think... um, uh, uh, very um, wisely. As the humanity was assumed into the hypostatic union, we may fitly say on the one hand that the person of Christ was anointed so far as the call to office was concerned, while we bear in mind on the other hand that it is the humanity that is anointed in as far as we contemplate the actual supplies of gifts and graces, aids and endowments necessary for the execution of his office. Then we move to the temptation of Christ. The temptation in the wilderness was the first and in some respects the most crucial test the Saviour faced in his life. Upon its successful outcome rested the whole issue of redemption. Not that its outcome was in doubt, But this must not cause us to minimize the reality of the importance of the temptation. Christ was truly tempted, yet without sin. In this whole matter, the Spirit was constantly operative. It is the Spirit that leads or drives him into the wilderness to be tempted. It was the Spirit who sustained and supported him and, endued with all necessary gifts by the Spirit for that office, on his return um, Owen says of him that is his return from the temptation immediately here on it is said that he was full of the Holy Ghost before he was said to wax strong in spirit um, and he explains that as meaning continually filling but now it is uh, he is full of the Holy Ghost he was actually possessed of and furnished with all the fullness of spiritual gifts which were any way needful for him or useful unto him or which human nature is capable of receiving. Then we consider his preaching. That the spirit was central in the exercise of his ministry can be seen from his application of Isaiah 61 to himself, as it is recorded in Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. It was the Spirit who anointed him to preach, who endowed him with Wisdom and understanding in the fear of the Lord. Everything necessary for a correct understanding of the mind of God in the scriptures. The best applications. The clearest expositions of the word the spirit supplies. The things that we as preachers of the gospel uh, uh, so much pray for and strive for um, in our preaching. The Lord had without measure, so much so that it was said of him, Never spake man like this man. And the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So we've seen um, his baptism, temptation, his preaching, and we may consider his miraculous works. That the Savior performed his miraculous works by the power of the Spirit may be seen in the passage just quoted above where it speaks of recovering sight to the blind. In other words, the miracle of giving sight to the blind. Another confirmation of this may be seen in his exorcism when challenged by the Jews that these were the work of the devil he replied and if I by the Elzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out, therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Although it is clear that some of the miraculous works were done by the power of the Holy Spirit, some have suggested that others were done by His divine power. In answer to the question, did Christ perform miracles in his own power. Uh, John uh, Valvour states now, um, this man has written a very uh, humble um, treatise that is entitled, A Comprehensive Work of the Holy Spirit in the Life of Christ. Um, Not even Owen, uh, I think, claimed that. But nevertheless, um, although he is from a dispensational background and probably off the wall in many things, There are some good things in what he says, but here uh, we will see perhaps we have to part company with them. But it is interesting to listen to what he says, because he is dealing with um, something that is said in the Scriptures. From the Scriptures considered, that is other Scriptures, it is evident that at least some miracles of Christ were performed by the power of the Holy Ghost. The question is often raised whether some of the miracles were performed by the power of his divine nature. And then he goes off on a wee tangent and then he comes back. While the problem is beyond final solution, there are some clear instances in Scripture which point to the conclusion that the power of the second person was not entirely inoperative and could be used at will. It seems that Christ chose to perform miracles in the power of the Spirit rather than that he had no alternative. Frequently, frequently, in reference to the miracles of Christ, the word power is used, and he quotes um, three instances, three or four instances. The power in point is often said to have proceeded from Christ. In connection with the healing of the woman who was touched by Christ in the throng, Christ perceived that uh, power <coughs> proceeding from him had gone forth. Again in Luke 5.17, the power to perform healings is referred to Christ himself. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. According to uh, Luke 6.19, power came forth from Christ in performing the miracles of healing. From the language of these passages, the conclusion might be reached that Christ, in some instances, acted in his own power. The final solution to the problem cannot be reached except to state that Christ performed his miracles by the power of the Spirit, and that he could, if he wished, and probably did, exercise his own power as well. In the unity of will and action of the Trinity, the cooperation of the second and third persons in doing mighty works should be expected. Now that is raising an interesting question, and although I don't agree with his conclusion, we do have to ask, how do we deal with those passages that speak of the power going forth from Christ? Well, I do not agree with uh, Valvoord's conclusion, and uh, for this reason, while it is true that the Saviour in his divine nature had all that was necessary to work such miracles, for him to have done so would seem to be out of keeping with his humiliation. He willingly undertook in the Incarnation to be dependent. It also does not chime with the usual way of God's working through the Holy Spirit as the executive of the Trinity. And in this connection you could look at Acts 2.22 which tells us that God wrought miracles by him. And the usual way of such working is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So much then for... Uh, Christ's miraculous works, the ministry of Christ. I've separated the next from the work, uh, the ministry of Christ, um, and looking at it as the work of his atonement. But the Holy Spirit gave comfort and support to Christ throughout his ministry, and in all the temptations, sorrows, and sufferings uh, he endured is shown by the following verse. Verse. Behold my servant whom I uphold Mine elect in whom my soul delighteth I have put my spirit upon him He shall go forth um, He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles I the Lord have called thee in righteousness And will hold thine hand And will keep thee and give thee For a covenant of the people And a light to the Gentiles And then again um, Isaiah fifty seven to 8 For the Lord God will help me Therefore shall I not be confounded Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. Who shall contend with, Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. And from these verses I'm taking, um, that they are referring to the Lord and his humanity being upheld by God. And if the normal and usual way of God, um, working in upholding and preserving his servants is by the power of the Holy Spirit, I would suggest that we can apply these verses uh, to uh, that end. However, despite the fact that that was the, um, if you will, the order of the day throughout the life of Christ, I want us to focus more particularly um, on Gethsemane, on his offering of himself and of his being in the state of the dead. Looking at Gethsemane, the Lord knew at least from the beginning of his ministry that his mission was to lay down his life a ransom for many. That's one of the early verses um, in Mark's Gospel. The Son of Man um, uh, has come to lay down his life a ransom for many. It is true that the Lord learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And if that is so, then it is surely true to say that the nearer he came to the pinnacle of that suffering, the greater his awareness of what it involved became. There is no lack of clarity, for example, in the upper room discourse as to his impending death, but it is clear that in the Garden of Gethsemane he is brought face-to-face with the horrors of that death in a way that he had not seen or had not been before. Such was the agony of the prospect of it um, as to cause his human nature to shrink from facing it. And we are told in Hebrews uh, 5.7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, and to him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. It is clear, I'm sure to all, that the Savior was not asking to be saved from death as such, not to be saved from death itself, uh, as Hugh Martin so eloquently quotes, "He did not indeed pray to be saved from dying. What then does the, uh, what then does it inevitably follow that he must have prayed for? if he prayed to be saved from death, and yet, not, uh, and yet prayed not to be saved from dying. What but for strength actively to die, to die in the active service of his office, and not as the downborn victim of death, to die as a priest, a priest forever, a priest in death itself, his priestly action uninterrupted in death, yea, triumphing in death, an offerer as well as a sufferer, an obedient official agent in the very article of death itself, in precisely this was he heard, he was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things he suffered. This prayer was heard and answered in the form of the power of the Holy Spirit to uphold And sustain the human nature of the Saviour, which would have collapsed under the weight of the wrath of God. Indeed, would have collapsed under the weight, the mere prospect of the weight of the wrath of God. Then consider the offering of himself. In Hebrews 9.14 we are told that the Saviour through the Eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God. (coughs) The question arises as to whether the Eternal Spirit uh, refers to the divine nature of the Son of God or to the Holy Spirit. There are many good men who are of the view that the Spirit referred to is Christ's own divine nature. And Owen has much to say in support of this. However, The opposite view is taken by Smeaton, and I am uh, uh, inclined to side with Smeaton on the question. And I want to uh, uh, give you a rather lengthy quote, and I give it not just to prove a point, but because there are some very interesting ideas. Who is it that's speaking on the burnt offering? Whoever it is, prick up your ears. Mm. The expression the eternal spirit can only mean the Holy Spirit according to the usual acceptation of the term, not the divine nature of Christ as too many expositors have understood it. The meaning is that the Son of God, moved and animated by the Holy Ghost, offered himself without spot as an atoning sacrifice. The Spirit rendered him an unspotted sacrifice. The Spirit discovered to him the inflexible claims of God as well as inflamed him with such love to man and zeal for God as prompted him to go forward in spite of every hindrance, pain and difficulty to effect the world's redemption and thus fitted him as man for his work. The Holy Spirit in a word filled his mind with the unflagging ardor, zeal and love which led him to to, uh, to complete the sacrifice. To explain the text as if it described the divine nature as priest and the human nature as the sacrifice is inadmissible. The whole person is priest and victim, for all done by either nature belongs to the person he offered himself, says the apostle. In this view of the matter, it would be mere tautology... If the eternal spirit spirit is interpreted of the divine nature to say he offered himself through the divine nature, it would on that principle be but a repetition of the same thing. If we take it, however, as intimating the action of the Holy Spirit, it will vividly uh, represent the holy fire by which the sacrifices were consumed. One does not find, except in this interpretation, anything in the sacrifice of Christ which could be adduced as an antitype of the holy fire employed in the sacrifice. Nor are the objections to the view which we have propounded of any weight. When it is objected that the Holy Spirit was not the priest who offered the sacrifice, the obvious answer is that Christ as priest offered himself a sacrifice possessed of infinite value and excellence in consideration of his divine person, and of the additional fact that it was uns- uh, was unspotted and offered through the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit was in him a spirit of faith and zeal and love. The Redeemer took upon him the, uh, with the utmost alacrity all that was to be performed and endured for man's redemption. And I think that, um, despite the length of that quote, it is actually a very interesting quote. So, we've seen um, the um, we've seen uh, Gethsemane. We've seen him offering himself. I want us um, uh, continuing under uh, the atonement to consider his being in the state of the dead. God promised the Saviour that he would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. Thus, at his death, his soul is entrusted into the Father's hand and his body into the care of the Spirit. This is surely inferred from the fact that the human nature of Christ was sanctified and made that holy thing by the Spirit, who sustained and preserved it from all harm throughout his life and ministry, not a bone of his body shall be broken, at the point when the Saviour makes himself an offering for sin, the work of maintaining the sanctity of his broken body in the grave would surely be continued by the one who had a special interest in it since all eternity. that weather actually makes me wonder if I'm on the right track. (laughs) (laughs) The last thing I want, uh, well, the second last thing I want to notice is his resurrection, glorification and ascension. It ought not to surprise us that each of the three persons of the Godhead should be attributed with the raising of Jesus from the dead. The Saviour himself uh, said of his life that I have power to lay it down and power to take it again. In other places, the resurrection is attributed to the Father, Acts 2.24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. However, it is also clear that the Holy Spirit is central in quickening and resurrecting the Lord and reuniting his body and soul as the following texts show, Romans one four and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Romans eight eleven. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Um, again, this is Ephesians one seventeen following. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward, uh, to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead." And there is a, an extensive footnote here, um, just to say that um, uh, I have the authority of own uh, to apply uh, this to the spirit and not to the Father, but you can take that up if you want. And then um, you may consider First Peter 318 for Christ also ha- hath one suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the Spirit. As to the glorification and ascension of the Lord, the Scriptures are clear here also that the Holy Spirit was intimately involved in these things. Hebrews 1.9, which is quoting Psalm 45.7, reads, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This anointing is further described in the Ephesians passage just quoted, which continues, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and have put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. That's we'll Ephesians 1 20 to 22. And then um, we might look uh, lastly at his eternal reign. And these are just some thoughts to conclude with. In that eternal reign, the saints will continue to develop in glory. John 16 13 tells us, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. The question I ask is this, does this stop at death? Is it only pertinent to this life? Will we not continue to be guided by the Spirit into all truth and glory? Will we grow through increased knowledge of the Saviour, and will we not have this increased knowledge by the ministry of the Holy Spirit taking of the things of Christ and revealing them to us the second thing um, that we might think about is this every grace exercised by the redeemed in glory will be by virtue of the Holy Spirit continually making us willing and able now you may want to take issue with these but on the basis of these two things I put out the more speculative point um, what is true with respect to our human nature and glory will be true of the Saviour's human nature. It will never have infinite knowledge. Like us, there will still be continuous development. And perhaps this is an aspect touched on in Revelation seven seventeen. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Can it be that the way he will lead them into the fountains of living water will be as one led there by the Holy Spirit himself? Thank you.
1: Well, brother, we have heard a very deep lecture there. Or at least I feel it was deep. Maybe you don't feel it was deep, but certainly a very deep and profitable lecture. Excellent. I would now like to ask if you have any questions, then please bring them forward, and uh, Mr. Woods will answer them, I hope. Could <laughs> 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 yeah, I just ask, just clarification on one point. I may have missed something, but uh, going back to the, near the beginning, when you were talking about the conception of Christ, the Virgin Mary, would you agree that um, the conception by the Holy Ghost was not in order to prevent the transmission of sin physically? But in order that Christ should be accepted from the covenant of works in Adam and the imputation of his first transgression, the consequence of which is the
0: corruption of our whole nature. I understand that Bart would be a proponent of the view that it was in order to break that that literally seminal flow of sin. Um, No, I don't accept uh, that position. Um, I I did have a section on uh, creationism and traducianism and I thought it would be utterly unprofitable Um, but no I take your point I, I I would accept what you have to say
2: Mr Roberts I wonder Mr Woods would you agree that one of the functions of the spirit in the person of Christ is to convey knowledge from his divine nature into his human nature, so that in a divine nature which was full of all knowledge, uh, was conveyed by the Spirit some of that knowledge into the human nature, but uh, in a limited way, so that the divine nature knew everything, the human nature did not, and the human nature simply knew neither more or less, and the Spirit brought into his human nature and the human mind so that he did not, for instance, know the time of his
0: second coming. Yes, I think that is actually a very important thing to maintain, um, because um, the... Um, what was I going to say now? I, I, would, I would agree with what you've said, That I, in my own view is that um, all the communication that came uh, to the human nature of Christ was via the Holy Spirit, um, and I don't. I, I'm, I. I wouldn't be prepared to say it was the only possible way. But I believe it was the only possible way in the light of the um, the agreement of Christ to humble himself. Um, uh, that um, uh, that uh, the uh, well. I am, in effect, agreeing with you that the the, uh, the fact um, is that that was how um, the divine nature communicated. And the the divine nature being the Logos, um, the Word of God, it, it would be the divine nature of Christ who is doing the communicating. You know, uh, yes. is, is giving the information. By the spirit. Yes.
2: Because the date of the second coming is something the human nature could not know. That's, that's
3: correct. Would the knowledge have to come from the divine nature of Christ rather than simply from God? Three persons.
0: Well, I think that um, my first um, uh, preliminary was that the external works of the Trinity are indivisible. Mm-hmm. And therefore we can say that um, uh, All knowledge that comes to the sinner comes from God. But the fact is that um, the scripture seems to indicate quite clearly that there is this um, order. Um, The father um, uh, decrees, the son um, uh, speaks forth, and the spirit reveals. Um, And if you think of um, the place of the Logos, uh, in the whole of creation and revelation um, I would say that um, the scripture emphasizes that the, the, the revelation of God comes via the Log- uh, from the logos uh, via the spirit yeah. not originally from God <laughs> well it, it's not in a question of originally from God it is from God yeah. The Logos is God and and the Spirit is God. Um, And uh, uh, the words that I speak says Jesus are not mine, uh, but the Father's which sent me. Um, And uh, uh, it is the Logos that lightens every man that cometh into the world. And, um, you know, I think that that is more than just uh, regenerates, uh, because that would be an impossible Thing. so it's the logos that gives rationality and um, uh, implants the uh, the law of God in the heart of man. Um, uh, it certainly seems to be attributed to the logos, and therefore um, I would yeah. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I would maintain that, yeah. that pattern. Dr. Boyd, yeah,
1: thank you very much. Uh, You have a. Out of all these things, we seem to be saying that the one immediate act that the Son of God made without the immediate action of the Holy Spirit was in the act of of taking of a. Assumption. I was going to ask you a question is there anything else that we could think of that falls into that category and initially my thought was well I can't think of one but you did mention in your paper that he committed his soul into his father's hand and his body I don't know what verb you used but whether it was committed it to the entrusted, spirit yeah. entrusted it to the spirit it, does that fall into the same category? That immediately First of all, can you explain what you mean by it? No, and I think that... And <clears throat> secondly, that he's interesting to it,
0: and that's, that's not the advice so I, 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 I think you're taking more out of it than was intended. We find Stephen um, using virtually the same formula. Um, and Stephen is able, enabled to do so by the operation of the Spirit in his life. He is able to Uh, commit his spirit into the hands of God because he is a spirit-filled man. Um, The Saviour is enabled uh, to entrust his spirit into the hands of God because he too is a spirit-filled man, although filled with all fullness. That's all I would um, imply from that. What an interesting is
1: this entrusted his body to the spirit?
0: Well, I try to I try to reason uh, that out um, uh, from the fact that from um, eternity the Spirit had the special um, the special, if you will, responsibility for the body. So that from eternity it is foreordained that He would form the body. At the conception, He is the one who is the um, the uh, the active cause. Um, ...of that conception, that supernatural conception. Um, if it is true uh, that the passage I quoted... ...that bone of his body will not be broken... ...that would have involved the uh, the operation of the spirit... ...and the providence of Christ... ...and consequently I would say um, by extension... ...that if that has been the pattern... ...then it is inconceivable that at that point... ...where Christ's body is most vulnerable that the spirit should desert um, and fail to, to uh, preserve it. <coughs> There's no doubt.
2: Just uh, some clarification on something quite the do be in the state of the dead. Uh, I wonder if just before we not see corruption zone, well, it's just that I, I, I think I missed some. Would you mind just going back and forth? on a few points? on.
0: You bear in mind, uh, gentlemen, that this uh, the, some of these things are simply unanswerable. Um, and, uh, you know, I will try... Um, just what you had, uh, not really more yeah. than woman there. Uh, okay, hold on. Just, yeah. ah, well, I've succeeded in getting these all muddled up. <laughs> That's the... The third or
2: the fourth last
0: year. It doesn't matter, they're all muddled up, so... <laughs> hold I guess, up. can you get it off your again? It's okay. Yeah. Um, It should be, uh, it should be quite, um, it should be quite, um, here it is, yes. (laughs) Um, God promised the Saviour that he would not allow his Holy One to see corruption, Psalm 16. Thus, at his death, his soul is entrusted into his Father's hand, into thy hands I commit my spirit, and his body to the care of the Spirit, and that uh, this is and, and then I say this is surely inferred from the fact that the human nature of Christ was sanctified and made holy um, uh, made that holy thing by the Spirit who sustained and preserved it from all harm throughout his life and ministry at the point when the Savior makes himself an offering for sin, the work of maintaining the sanctity of his broken body in the grave would surely be continued by the one who had had a special interest in it since all eternity. An interesting
3: point from that maybe would be, you know how we talk about their bodies being still united to Christ Mm -hmm. to rest in the grave till the resurrection. Mm -hmm. That uh, the body is united, we are united to Christ (coughs) by the Spirit. Mm -hmm. So our own bodies remain united to Christ in the grave by the Holy Spirit
2: it's an interesting thing
0: if if you remember um, Mm. Hugh Martin in the atonement quotes a man called MacLagan I tried to get his work, I can't find it anyway but MacLagan and he has the imagery of um, the the body and spirit um, uh, of Christ like a sword and scabbard Mm. and it is the person he, he there speaks of the person taking the sword from the scabbard, so that they are united still to the person. Um, But I still think that um, that operation is carried on uh, from the the point of view of the human nature of Christ uh, by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. But this is where you get into all sorts of complications, and this is why it's... it's, uh, uh, Sometimes it's necessary for us simply to act as though it's only one person or another that's doing what all the persons of the Godhead are doing. That, been asking well, for ages.
1: Think, I'll go for Mr. Kirkland and then I'll come back to Mr. Moore.
4: On the assumption of the human nature by Christ, you said it was the second person, not the divine nature. Could you explain that?
0: Well, um, <clears throat> if, if it is true that, that, that the second person of the Godhead assumed a human nature and not a human person to himself, mm-hmm. um, a person has a nature. A nature doesn't have a nature apart from his own nature, if, if you want to look at it like that. So, that, um, is a nature capable of, of doing anything? A nature, uh, uh, you know, the activating force in a nature is the person. Uh, If you can, uh, I mean, how do you explain these things? I don't know, but um, take it from me (laughs) that um, uh, that a person uh, is the one who must act, who must will, who must assume. A nature can't do that. Don't ask me to prove that. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. McDonough.
1: We're speaking there, and I agree that the Spirit is the one who communicates or reveals knowledge to the humanity of Christ. That's how he learns. Mm -hmm. Do you have a thought on, is that primarily direct revelation, or is it primarily learned through
0: the Old Testament scriptures? I, I, um, A bit of both. I guess I, I, I mean it is it is both, um, but I'm just trying to think of uh, an example of direct revelation.
3: Well, there were cases where he knew what was in man. Uh, uh,
0: Lazarus, John chapter two, I think. Yeah. I, I, think um, I, I think you see if we if we think of Christ. As the the mediator in his prophetic office, then how did a prophet? Uh, how did a How was a prophet able to speak? Thus saith the Lord. Mm-hmm. He was able to speak by the ministry of the Spirit. So that I think that um, the Saviour, who was the prophet supreme, uh, when he speaks, he speaks by the Spirit of the the Lord. And so, in his preaching. Mm-hmm. Which is more than simply what we would call preaching, in the sense that he speaks all truth. He knows what the Father, um, uh, what the Father's will is, and he speaks it. That, I believe, would be uh, through the um, operation of the Spirit, uh, if you will, the Spirit of prophecy.
4: If you use the Old Testament scriptures to answer Satan's. Means- the,
0: the knowledge was coming from his knowledge of the Old Testament as well. Yes, I'm, I'm not denying that. I, I think that you, but you have to <coughs> allow for both. That um, uh, Jesus said more than the Old Testament. So he had, a, he had a perfect grasp and understanding of the Old Testament. But he said more than the Old Testament. Because he is he coming with his father's words. Not just his father's words as engrossed in, 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 in the Old Testament, but his father's words as revealed to him through the Spirit's ministry.
2: <laughs> Mr. Roberts. Could I suggest, that, please, uh, a practical, uh, from our point of view, uh, application of your excellent lecture. And it's this, the unction that came on Christ. doctor Lord Lloyd-Jones... <coughs> used to believe and teach that we should look for unction in ourselves as preachers. And he believed, (coughs) I think, and John Jay perhaps would me if I'm not, that the unction could come suddenly on a man and transform his ministry from being orthodox and good to being outstanding. I think we have historical examples. Dr. Macdonald Ferrantosh in Edinburgh. He was an orthodox preacher, but then in Edinburgh something happened which transformed him. I think the same is true of D. L. Moody and certainly of David Morgan in the 1859 revival in Wales. Suddenly, um, David Morgan said he woke up one day in a lion for two years, mm-hmm. hundreds of left. I'd like us to, if I may suggest, that's a very fruitful thought in terms of our great need of unctioned preachers today.
0: I think that's a very valid point. That that was part of what I was driving at yeah. uh, when, you know, if we think of Christ the preacher. Well, surely what we as preachers strive for is not to be like Jay Adams or not to be like Lloyd-Jones. We strive to be like Christ. Um, And uh, his ministry is um, a ministry that is guided by um, and enabled by the Spirit. Right at the beginning of the the school, you mentioned that um, the great need of our day, is an outpouring of the Spirit. And I would say that the best thing that could happen to us as preachers is actually such an outpouring. Um, And however we could, um, you know, uh, however that could come about, um, I believe it would would draw us closer in our preaching to the example of Christ. Absolutely.
4: I think some of these cases that Dr Lloyd-Jones is referring to... The spirit came with that action and then it sometimes went away because he yeah. gives us examples of Welsh men who were used in revival and they completely lost it. Yeah. We we're back to ordinary preaching. After two uh,
2: years, David Morgan got. Yeah, so that's him. not the
4: kind of thing we're really looking for. We're looking for perhaps the ancient that was on men like MacLean and the Bonners, you know, coming through our reviving. You take both.
2: I would. Fact, <laughs> I would be happy with the <laughs> both. <laughs> <it. laughs> I think it's wrong to be
4: yeah. looking for. Them. But one really, I, I just feel that God does it in a sovereign way.
0: Well, I, I think that's that's true. But I think that the Lord is acting sovereignly according to His sovereign purpose in a particular situation, like John Livingston, Curtis yeah, yeah. Um You know, uh, and there was a man who reverted to ordinary preaching and yet um, greatly used because the Lord had a purpose in Curtis um, and that John Livingston is the instrument that the Lord is pleased to use um, canvas line revival you know McCulloch a poor <coughs> teacher by his own son's um, uh, admission, admission um, is greatly used of the Lord because the Lord had a work in canvas line so, Can I
2: just I, I, I agree with this on unction, but we have to be prepared <coughs> Uh, for the, all of the effects Jesus in his great discourse on the bread of life uh, 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 and following on on his claims to Messiah and so on
0: they followed him no more yeah. uh,
2: uh, and we, we have to be prepared for Absolutely. that aspect all of it as well yeah.
0: yes, unction is not the same as revival And there may be a a preacher. No, that's right. And a preacher. You know, when you think about it, um, and I say this with respect and reverence, at the end of three years' ministry, the Lord had relatively little success if he went by numbers. Mm -hmm. 120 meeting. I mean, we would be delighted to have 120, but he only has 120. But, you know, so you can't measure. Um, the, the unction um, by revival you measure it by the unction <laughs> I would agree with that son surely we're done Dr. Boyd <laughs> just a few more thoughts on the, the direct teaching of the saviour Isaiah 58 and
1: you give me the tongue of the learners
0: Yes, I think it's clear that the spirit um, is constantly. Um, it's interesting because I talked. Uh, uh, one of the quotations talked about all all the gifts, everything being um, uh, poured out on Christ at his uh, baptism, and uh, there are there is perhaps another way of looking at um, this, and we might see. Uh, these examples as what is latent becoming potent. Is that right? Latent, potent. Or is it the other way about? (laughs) Um, The idea that the gifts are there but as he moves through the ministry they come into um, greater activity. Um, You think for example of you know, the special requirements that were called for in Gethsemane. Not called for any other place. Um, And, for example, none of us surely would deny that Christ was obedient throughout his life. But if we were to um, pin, um, you know, one point in in his life where that obedience reached its climax surely it would be not my will but thine be done
3: I thought the point that you made at the very end was very interesting, the idea I thought of it of um, the spirit's ministry throughout eternity uh, taking of the things of Christ and revealing them unto us being on Christ as it were as he led us to living fountains and waters he himself, as it were, drinking of these fountains yeah. and sharing with us.
0: This is why I said at the beginning, you know, you're always afraid that you're actually veering into an error. But I don't think that is an error, because um, the humanity of Christ is a true humanity, never ceases yeah. to be a true humanity, and for that reason it never becomes infinite in knowledge. Yeah. Therefore there has to be an ongoing revelation to the saviour, um, in his humanity. And if that is the case, then you ask, how is that done? Um, and if, if the pattern that we see throughout his life is preserved, then it's done by the ministry of the Spirit. And if that is the case, then as we uh, behold the face of Christ and learn more of Christ and delight more in Christ... It's because um, the Spirit is taking up the things of Christ, you might say both is, uh, you, you know, Christ the person, Christ is divinity, Christ is humanity, and revealing it to us. And we're learning more and more. It's, it's dangerous to speculate too much, but I find that a very, um, a, a, a very interesting area. Um, that I've never read anywhere and that's why I was a bit reluctant to <laughs> mention it
4: one of the greatest wonders to me is the silence that we have of Christ's life from one to you know, the 30s you might say And when you say well he was in the Jerusalem about his father's business but all the time the carpenter's bench he was at his father's business yes. and that shows us that there's a dignity to ordinary life and, you know <coughs> and therefore You know, people think of heaven as just, you know, all temple and people worshipping all the time at a temple, but it's not. It's the restoration of creation and the human nature, again, coming back to what God intended it to be, with Christ at the head. I don't want to give into any controversy. No,
0: I think that 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 is actually a very uh, true statement, and the reason I said nothing about it is because there's nothing said about it and that would definitely have raised controversy if I started telling you what the Bible didn't say
1: (laughs) well again on your behalf we'd like to thank uh, Mr Woods it must be a very difficult thing to give a lecture on that subject but also must be a very daunting thing to stand here and answer or at least to try to answer all the questions that have been posed and our thanks to him for that. I'm a bit green as to what's happened now. Are we, are we? Well, I think we're we'll just close. Do you, do you want, have got
4: notices?
2: Could I ask Mr. Murray if I'm allowed to read? <laughs> <laughs> Not with a view to conquering anybody. <laughs> <laughs> just to say what what is sent. But very, very quickly. It only takes a moment. <clears throat> Larger Catechism, 90. At the day of judgment, the righteous being called after Christ in the gospel,